0: Blaze on Demand. This is Ben Weingarten of the Blaze Books, and today I'm joined by James Pearson, author of the new book, Shattered Consensus The Rise and Decline of America's Postwar Political Order. Mr. Pearson is president of the William E. Simon Foundation, a private grant making foundation located in New York City, focusing on education, religion, and problems of youth. He's also a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, where he is director of the Center for the American University. Previously, he was executive director and trustee at the John M. Olin Foundation, and before that, a political science professor at Iowa State University, Indiana University, and the University of Pennsylvania. And he is truly one of the preeminent leaders in the conservative philanthropic movement. With all that said, thanks for joining us, James. Ben, thanks very much, and thanks for that very kind introduction. In light of the day's news, how do you think about Greece's fiscal situation in light of the themes that are drawn out in Shattered Consensus.
1: Uh, yes, I mean, the the title Shattered Consensus is very interesting. I came up with that title quite a while ago, before Greece uh, went down and was having its troubles, of course, before Donald Trump, uh, before the Supreme Court's uh, recent decision, uh, before the controversy over the Confederate flag, uh, before a lot of these events. Obviously Greece uh, represents the kind of an end state of a certain kind of politics. The politics of debt, uh, endless borrowing, and vote buying by politicians who are prepared to sell out the future to win votes today and pay off people today. Of course, Greece, uh, the government of Greece broke all the rules of the European Union in terms of borrowing fiscal deficits, and so on, and that's one of the issues they're facing. You can't keep the European Union together if the various countries are going to break the fiscal rules. So uh, yes, yeah, so and we have situations like that in the United States, Puerto Rico, of course, uh, Chicago, things are not looking good in Chicago. You know, I suggest in my book that if we have, and when we have, because I think it's inevitable another deep recession or stock market crash, we're likely to see bankruptcies all across the country. And uh, municipalities and pension funds and various state governments, which cannot go bankrupt under the law, are themselves going to have enormous difficulty. One of the things that we're seeing is a kind of a slow motion collapse uh, as, you know, one by one gradually Puerto Rico happens and Chicago happens and so on. Because we've had such slow growth in the United States now for about 15 years, very subpar growth in terms of historical trends. And this is st- these problems are starting to mount up all over the country.
0: Now, Greece sort of had its consensus, which was in leftist policies, which ultimately bankrupted it. And and we'll see if any of if the compromise that has been worked out actually in practice will be followed or if Greece will not be subject to further and further further bailouts ad infinitum, in America we've had this post-war consensus that you talk about, which has sort of culminated in what you see as potentially a fourth revolution. Speak a little bit to that.
1: Uh, yes, I mean I uh, I have a I develop in this book a a theory of American history and politics. And which I argue that the United States, under the same Constitution, has, has gone through three quite separate regimes of political economy, interrupted by significant crises in which we reformulate the system. Uh, the first was the what I call the Jeffersonian era from 1900, or from 1800 to 1860. That was an agricultural regime. It was uh, anti-capitalist. Uh, It was expansionist. Uh, It was opposed to the National Bank and very much opposed to government debt. And uh, the Democratic Party throughout that period dominated American politics. Of course, its basis was in the South, and it uh, was based, therefore, to some degree upon slavery and the huge investment made in slaves and cotton. cotton. in the early part of the 19th century was the commodity that drove the international economy. Textile mills in Great Britain and in the American North ran on American cotton. Cotton represented 60 percent of American exports, huge percentage. Uh, it was the dominant export in the country. So that was an integrated political regime dominated by the Democratic Party, based in the South, and on cotton production. And, of course, we know how it came apart. It came apart over the issue of slavery in the territories. It was replaced after the Civil War by the Republican Party, which was an industrial party, based in the North, based on the idea of tariffs and the gold standard, and control over the national market. And uh, the achievement of the Republicans in that era Uh, was to industrialize the country and urbanize the country. And we know how that came apart, came apart in the Great Depression. And that was replaced by a period of crisis in the 30s and 40s, which led to our kind of welfare entitlement national security state uh, that developed in the post-war era. So we've had three of these regimes, each has lasted 60 or 70 years. Each was driven forward by one of the political parties. In a certain sense, I argue, we've had not a two-party system, but a -a one-and-a-half-party system. The dominant regime party puts a new regime in place, and the opposition party has little choice but to say, me too, but with some reservations. And that's what more or less happened to the Whig party before the Civil War, Uh, the Democratic Party after. The Civil War and the Republican Party after World War II. So my thought is that due to the accumulation of debt and slowing economic growth and the enormous promises our governments have made to seniors and pensioners and students and all sorts of groups, we're not going to be able to pay these promises. And this will come to a head in the next decade or so. And America is going to be have to identify a coalition that can restore growth, that can begin to pay off all these promises.
0: And of course, as with these other eras where you've had these major realignments in the American system, something, some kind of crisis will ultimately precipitate whatever we become as a nation. So, You spoke a little bit to the slow motion, sort of rolling nature of what America is experiencing. Maybe you could argue that the last financial crisis was sort of the beginning of the reckoning where you had private failures, private losses socialized on the public balance sheet, and maybe it's the public balance sheet that's next. Question is, in the event that there is such a crisis, it seems that you have a fairly optimistic outlook that Americans will rise to the occasion. What gives you the, that optimism that America will re-found itself on a stronger footing rather than choose, say, the path of more of a benevolent dictator, if you will?
1: Well, Ben, that's the question, $64,000 question, as they say. Why am I optimistic? Uh, I guess it's a, just a matter of faith that Americans have come through this in the past. There's certainly no guarantee that we'll solve these problems. You know, if the South had not seceded in 1860, the United States might have gone through an extended period, 30, 40, 50 years of stalemate, uh, uh, and being unable to solve any of its problems. So something like that conceivably could happen again. The parties are so far apart. They veto one another. Nothing can get done. Uh, so that—that that is certainly a possibility. My thought, however, is that that one of the things that has happened is we've lost the consensus on the value of economic growth. That was one of the pillars of the post-war consensus. JFK was a growth politician. Harry Truman was a growth politician. So was Lyndon Johnson. They saw that growth was the key. FDR was a growth politician. The Democrats have lost their faith in growth. And they've uh, gravitated into all sorts of other uh, questions, whether it's global warming or redistribution, or multiculturalism and all the rest, leaving the Republican Party as the, basically the party that's promoting uh, business growth. So uh, you know, your, que- your question is a good one. It's the, it's the, kind, of, it's the kind of thing that Americans are going to have to wrestle with in the decade ahead. We won't be able to pay for all of our entitlements. We won't be able to pay for all of our poverty programs. We won't be able to pay for our defense uh, unless we get some economic growth. We won't be able to have a benevolent state. A benevolent state requires resources. And without economic growth, we won't have it. Now, America's grown at about 2 percent a year for 15 years. It's not just since the recession of 08. This goes back to the uh, recession of 2000 and 2001, the dot-com bubble. America's never fully recovered from that to get the kind of growth we had in the 1980s and 1990s. So we are suffering now, as you suggest, a kind of slow motion. What happens when we get the next recession and stock market crash? It inevitably will happen. Uh, wh- what's going to happen across the country when when this occurs? Uh, in the wake of 2008, that could that, that could be devastating. I would say one thing here, just in another historical note, the, the period from 1980 to the present has been a remarkable period in the history of American capitalism. You could point to three big things that have happened. One, declining interest rates and disinflation. Very important. That's been going on for 35 years now. Two, a boom in stock and bond prices. unprecedented. Uh, In 1980 or 81, the total value of all stock markets in the world was between one and two trillion dollars. Now it's about $60 trillion. Incredible wealth has been accumulated in both the bond and the stock markets. Bond markets even bigger, as you know, than the stock market. And the third thing is accumulation of debt, public and private. Total credit market debt in the United States is today around 60 trillion three and three and a half times GDP. Up until 1980, G, uh, total credit market debt tracked GDP one to one. Since 1980, there's been an explosion of debt, public and private. These things are related. Declining interest rates uh, propelled the surge in debt. Uh, the surge in debt propelled the bond and stock markets. Those things, uh, the bond and stock markets further collateralized more debt, and so on and so on. But interest rates tend to move in cycles. Uh, The period from 1945 to 1980 was a period of rising interest rates. We've now had 35 years of declining interest rates. What happens when all these trends reverse themselves? I think that will happen. This golden age that we've lived through won't, won't go on forever. And when it does, we'll have to face a reckoning with our accumulated debt and slow growth.
0: And it could be that James Carville's bond vigilantes end up ruling the day. Is is what you're saying, in effect?
1: Well, yes. I mean, when you think about it, the bond market is, of course, huge. It's about forty trillion dollars, probably more than that. Uh, stock markets in the United States is somewhere twenty-one, twenty-two trillion dollars in capitalization. So, uh, the bond you could have made as much. Money year in and year out investing in bonds over the last 30 years as in stocks, I think. I haven't seen those numbers. That was not true in the period from 1945 to 1980. You could not have made very much money in bonds. And I guess my question is what happens when all that reverses itself? Now, I say we've lived through a golden age because th- these things that have happened in America are unprecedented. And in terms of the wealth, and of course the stock market surge has underwritten all these innovations in the economy. The technology boom could not have happened without the boom in the stock and the bond markets. So uh, I think we should appreciate the fact that we've lived through an extraordinary period. And uh, we should appreciate that with the knowledge that these things tend to come to an end at some point. That's the way markets work. and. The 2008 episode was a kind of a warning. You know, when I think about what happened in 2008, the so-called real estate and mortgage-backed securities crisis, that does not appear to me now, in retrospect, to have been a systematic crisis unless we believe that stupidity and irresponsibility are part of the system that we have today. The Great Depression was much more of a systematic uh, thing because it really developed out of the fallout from World War One, which is a huge event. The, the, the subprime mortgage crisis was just a, a, a dumb thing that the government started with the idea that we, we want to promote home ownership, so we're going to force the banks and the government uh, enterprises to underwrite all these subprime mortgages for people who couldn't afford them. And that's more or less what happened. And we're digging ourselves out of that. But it was a warning as to what could happen if we have a serious systemic problem. And that's probably out there somewhere.
0: <clears throat> and, of course, what happens in the general economy, in, in political economy generally, ultimately stems from ideas And two ideas that are crucial to your book that you lay out in great detail are those of John Maynard Keynes and Friedrich Hayek constantly battling each other throughout the 20th century and now into the 21st century. Speak a little bit to those two figures and their role in your book.
1: Yes, I spend a couple of chapters on Keynes and a chapter on Hayek. And I I don't really attack Keynes uh, in the book Uh, I try to elucidate his ideas, and I try to explain why Keynes' ideas probably don't work in the current period, uh, for political reasons, not economic reasons. I got some of my ideas from Keynes, frankly. Keynes wrote a book on World War I called The Economic Consequences of the Peace, in which he basically argued that the events of World War I. Destroyed the 19th century economic order of free markets and limited government. And uh, he said that uh, for a lot of reasons. One, the European economies were wrecked. All the gold in the world, a lot of it, had moved to the United States. Uh, the, the capital that had been accumulated in that period was destroyed. And he felt that the states and uh, governments in the future would have to take much greater role in guiding uh, economic growth and investment than in the past, and he had, had a lot of reasons for that. What I, what I suggest uh, is that in a period in which government spends a great deal, and we've had 70 years of it going back to the 30s and 40s, and interest groups have organized around the state to get that money, Keynesian stimulus policies don't work that well because all the money goes to entrenched interests, many of which are trying to block economic growth to begin with. Uh, They're trying to get tax breaks. It goes to public employee unions uh, who don't want to see any change. And so, therefore, in this context, stimulus spending only uh, creates more roadblocks to growth when what, in fact, we need to do is break up the interest group system and free up our economy. Hayek, of course, uh, attacked all these Keynesian ideas. Uh, He didn't think planning was possible, and he thought the Keynesian remedies would simply lead to more inflation. He's been partly right on that. I'm not sure he's been totally vindicated. But what happened in the wake of the financial crisis was that Keynes came back. Uh, full bore, as if he had never been discredited. People thought his his theories had been discredited in the 1970s. But uh, Barack Obama came back with stimulus packages and all sorts of things designed to stimulate demand. And it hasn't worked very well. For uh, a theory that is as influential as Keynes's, it's got a very mixed record. Japan, of course, has tried all sorts of Keynesian stimulus remedies since 1990. It has not worked out very well. Great Britain tried them in the 1960s. They failed. Uh, Jimmy Carter tried them in the United States in the 1970s. They failed. One could point to the 1960s, Kennedy and Johnson, especially Kennedy's tax cut, as a success, but of course he did that via a tax cut, not by spending. FDR's policies were too experimental and episodic to uh, be chalked up to Keynesian remedies. But these two things continue to battle. The two political parties represent the different prongs of these two theories. The Democrats want to stimulate growth by more spending. The Republicans by freeing up the economy. And at the end of the day the voters will decide. I've, I've stated in the book where I stand I don't think the Keynesian remedies will work in our
0: circumstance, even though I think we'll continue to try them. I think it's clear, as a, a former Enron advisor has advocated in the pages of the New York Times for years, that we just haven't thrown enough money at the problems.
1: Well, you know, I hear that. I think that's, that's absurd.
0: I was being uh, sarcastic, by the way. Yeah, just...
1: I know. <laughs> the, the idea that the United States has followed a policy of austerity is not accurate. We ran up a, in 0, 08, 09, and 2010. We ran up annual federal deficits of 10 to 15 percent of GDP, trillion dollars. Those—that's enormous amounts of stimulus, quote unquote. The Federal Reserve has been buying up bonds. It's the not only government bonds, but bad mortgages and all sorts of things. The balance sheet of the of the Fed is now somewhere around four or five trillion dollars unprecedented amounts, and, of course, we've had interest rates at basically zero for six or seven years. So we've thrown an enormous amount of Keynesian-style stimulus uh, at this problem with, without a great deal to show for it. And uh, this, again, gets back to the problem. We need to find a way to generate private sector growth. Uh, we're going to run out of Keynesian ammunition pretty soon if we haven't run out of it already.
0: You've spent a significant portion of your professional life fighting the war of ideas, either through educating folks, yourself, or through supporting causes that promote our ideas. And you write something in your book that I think is very perceptive about we conservatives. You write, and I quote, even with their many successes and the growth of their cause, conservatives have never really functioned comfortably within mainstream politics, in part because they are more concerned with ideas and principles than with programs in the day-to-day administration of government, unquote. And I would add a corollary, which is that we care about being right on the ideas, and the left cares about winning. Do you see that on our side, and do you believe that the larger conservative organizations are beginning to internalize that fact and looking to influence the culture so that we can ultimately win this war of ideas? Yeah, you know,
1: you know, there are various things, Ben, that could be said about that. Of course, a lot of us thought in the 1980s and 90s that we'd kind of won this war of ideas uh, following the Reagan years. The successes were enormous. Uh, we jump-started economic growth, solved the inflation problem, Soviet Union disappeared, uh, crime declined, New York City revived itself, uh, the stock market boomed. We thought we'd won these ideas, this uh, these battles of ideas, but you know, we were short-sighted. Uh, it's that's all back again. You have Barack Obama, you have Hillary Clinton, and you have a Pope enunciating these left-wing ideas that Pope John Paul the seemed to have rejected. So one one lesson is that. This appears to be a kind of eternal battle. These things are never won. The second, second thing I'd say is that the left, I think, is probably more political than the right is. This is the point I think I was trying to get at in that quotation you mentioned. The The right is not really good at administration, at running governments, uh, at passing out favors. At doing all the things you need to do to be a successful uh, day-to-day political movement. We are good at ideas, and that's important up to a point. But, but at some point uh, you have to run governments and pass out favors and lure voters, and uh, we're just not as good at that as, as the left is. The left is more political, as I say, because, look, a lot of them get their livelihoods from government. They work for government. They get contracts from government. They kind of live in close proximity to government. Conservatives are interested in reigning in the enterprise. So that somewhat makes us uh, less political uh, than the left. The thing that's in going in our favor is I don't think left-wing ideas, at the end of the day, are going to be successful in delivering economic growth to for 300 million Americans. They can pay off interest groups and keep them happy to a certain degree. But their policies will not deliver economic growth. And that, I think, is their Achilles' heel.
0: The name of the book is Shattered Consensus, The Rise and Decline of America's Postwar Political Order. And we've been speaking with its author, James Pearson. James, thanks so much for joining us. Ben, thanks very much. I've enjoyed it very much. For more on this and other books, you can visit The Blaze Books at www.theblaze.com books. And follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash theblazebooks and Twitter at theblazebooks. You can follow me on Twitter at bhwinegarden.